Well, hello everybody, this is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 40. It is Tuesday, May 5th. We have another excellent poet for you today. We're going to be meeting with Danusha Lamaris in just a minute. Um, but first of all, I should say, um, Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been in continuous publication since 1995, and we just do it because we love poetry. So if you love poetry as much as we do, and we hope you do, please click the like button and share. And uh, do all that good stuff, no matter where you're listening, because that really helps. Um, now, I want to remind everybody before we start that we have a um, prompt poem open mic at the end of every show, so we can all get together and share some poems um, about different topics. Uh, this week's prompt was a, a superhero comes home after a long day's work. Kind of not really inspired, but accidentally inspired by uh, William Trowbridge's episode last week with Old Guy Superhero. So if you have one of those poems that you'd like to share, um, all you have to do is send it to openmic at rattle.com, and uh, I can read it for you. And if you would like to read it yourself, you can uh, call us up at uh, 818-85-whatever-the-number eh, is. I'll show you the number later. There's a number you can call, and um, I never remember it. But uh, you can also send a chat message to uh, Rattle Poetry over Skype and connect with us that way. And I'll call you at the end of the show if you're interested um, when um, the time is right in about an hour. So if you'd like to do that, uh, send your poem to openmic at rattle.com. And I can um, show it on screen as you read it. And that's always a lot of fun. And uh, me and Megan wrote one, as always. And uh, we have a lot of fun with that. Now, um, I thought maybe for the warm-up poem from now on, we would do a poem by um, next week's poet. I thought maybe there'd be a way to like sort of make every episode like a, like a um, crown of sonnets or something, where each, each end of stanza is the beginning of the next stanza or something like that. So um, next week's guest is going to be Rosemary Watola Tromer, or Tromer, I think you say it. And um, the first time we published her, I just love this poem. This was the winner of the um, uh, November 2015 Ekphrastic Challenge, so almost five years ago. And this is her poem, Divining. And um, let me show it to you here. This is uh, Divining by Rosemary Watola Trummer. And um, let's, let's give a listen. And it's based on uh, this photograph by Megan Tudelo, or a painting, I should say, by Megan Tudelo uh, called... Uh, well, it doesn't say what it's called, but um, it's, a pen, it's a Pittsburgh cityscape. And if you're watching, if you're listening on iTunes or anything like that and can't see, this is a, a gorgeous painting, a little bit abstract, of um, sort of the three rivers in Pittsburgh, on a um, moonlit night with a purple sky and the city lights uh, shining through. And uh, Rosemary's poem was Divining, which you'll be able to hear right now. Divining, not just on the wall, the writings on the sky, the river, the bridge, hmm. your hands. Wouldn't you love to believe all those blue and red lines make a map? And if only you knew how to read those lines, you might know where to go from here. Yes, we're all lost and wrinkling. Yes, and surely doomed. But God, in this moment between concerns, look. Isn't it beautiful? 
this place where we wander, this hour when gold gathers just before the plum of night. And I just love that poem. Um, I love that. I thought it was a good poem to uh, share this time of night, uh, this hour when gold gathers just before the plum of night. That was Rosemary Tromer, next week's guest on the Rattlecast. We'll be able to um, uh, hear her new book, uh, Naked for Tea. She's the author of, I think, 11 books of poetry, uh, but Naked for Tea is her most recent, so that's what we'll be focusing on. Now, this week's guest is a poem we published twice in Rattle number 38, and uh, most recently in Rattle number 66, just this winter. Uh, Tanusha Lamaris, let me show her book on screen. Her newest book that just came out from uh, Pitt Press is um, Bonfire Opera. It's a bit of a glare. It's a, it's a uh, beautiful cover, though. And uh, on the back of the book, we'll read her bio here. Uh, Danusha Lamaris is the author of The Moons of August, selected by Naomi Shihab Nye as the winner of the Autumn House Press Poetry Prize and finalist for the uh, Milt Kessler Book Award. Some of her poems have been published in Best American Poetry, The New York Times, American Poetry Review, Tin House, The Gettysburg Review, and Plowshares. She teaches poetry independently and is the current poet laureate of Santa Cruz County, California. And um, here she is. Danusha Lamaris. Hey, Danusha, how you doing tonight? Oh, you're still unmute yourself. No problem, no problem. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a little warm, but it's good. Yeah. Well, it's, it, it's, yeah, a great, great backdrop for poetry tonight, too. It's a nice, it looks like you have a nice view out that window. We do. We have a giant plum tree over there. Oh, yeah. And I get to watch coyotes eating the plums. That oh, fall. really? Oh, that's nice. Yeah. 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 Santa Cruz is a cool place. I like Santa Cruz a lot. A lot of poetry there, too. Oh, my gosh. Town of Gary Young and Ellen Bass and Joseph Stroud and so many others. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's a smallish, if it's for a city-ish, you know, it's small. How, so, how many people live there? Do you know? You know what? I was just trying to ask my husband that last night, and I can't remember. <laughs> um, so no idea. But yeah. it's not like a half a million people or something. Mm-hmm. It's it's yeah. It, it's I one of those hundred something uh, thousand. I don't know. Yeah, it's one of those poetry nexuses. There's like Port Townsend, yeah. and then there's there's Santa Cruz, and um, I don't know. I'd have to struggle to think of another one. Maybe like Austin for Slam or something. But um, it's a great place to be for a poet. To go yeah, it is really good. I mean, after that, you have to go New York or something or L.A., like big. But for a town, yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, so, do you want to start out by reading a poem? I could do that. I could. Um, I have kind of a traditional poem that I start with. I don't because mm-hmm. I feel like it talks about <sighs> what we make of the world. And I feel like poems are such a, a device for trying to figure out the world. What is going on with it? And how do we deal with the things that we d- dislike? <laughs> so it's actually the first poem in, in Bonfire Opera, mm-hmm. and it's called Scrub Jays. Oh, thanks. And I forgot to tell you before we started, but um, let me know the page number if you could from oh, now yeah. on. I have this one, but from now on so okay. I can uh, put it up quick. I'll do that. And so. this is, yeah, Roman numeral, I guess, because it's introductory. Yeah. Scrub Jays. When we pay attention to nature's music, we find that everything on earth contributes to its harmony. Hazrat Inayat Khan. All morning, they've been screeching back and forth between the oak tree and the roof, bickering over bits of cat food pinched from the metal bowl by the door. When song was handed out, the lark and nightingale 
got there first. Who can blame the jays for raiding the robin's nest? It's pale and delicate eggs. For tearing the dark red plums straight from each other's beaks. Who can blame the ear in its ignorance for wanting music and failing to hear it? That was the introduction poem, Scrub Jays, from uh, Tanusha's newest book, Bonfire Opera. Um, you started out sort of already talking about um, what poetry's purpose is, but that's one of my favorite th- sort of things to talk about or think about. Um, yeah. So what, like, why do you write poetry? And, um, and, and what do you think the purpose is? Like, why do we do this thing that we do? Uh, why, why is, and, and how did you come to understand that and, and start writing poetry yourself? Yeah, gosh, super good question, Tim. And so many layers, you know, I think most of us start writing poetry because of some kind of heartbreak or something we just don't know what to do with. And I think that was the case for me. Uh, how do you deal with loss? which is, tends to be one of my key subjects, you know? And so I think I turned to it in that way. And I was, you know, I've been thinking, it's kind of one of the last sacred secular traditions in some way. It's not exactly a sacred tradition, but uh, poets used to be priests apparently and hold that kind of a role. And I think there's something that priesthood and poetry have in common. <laughs> that has to do with being really intimate with the world or with life, you know, kind of down to the marrow. What is it about? And, um, and it's kind of, is also passed on through a sort of tr- transmission, mm-hmm. you know, almost, uh, you know, we have poetry teachers that we revere and that transmit this art form to us. And without that, I wouldn't be a poet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's sort of like a, like a, um, I don't know. I, I almost said cult, but the, the cult is not the right <laughs> word. I mean, um, you know, like a, a, a calling or a, um, you know, yeah. there's some kind of like, you know, way that it passes through, um, you know, in a way that it always has, which is the strange thing. I'm sure one before we had right. before we had writing, I'm sure through the oral tradition, you know, uh, priests or whatever they would call priests, shamans would pass down from one generation to the next all the stories that mattered and make new stories they went and stuff like that so um, it's sort of carrying on one of the longest traditions in in the human race I think I think that's exactly right and there's just a few things like that and we tend to be very drawn to things that are the oldest traditions and I think about that as um, like storytelling around a fire we all crave that Mm -hmm. right yeah and what's another thing like that even bread making, now that people are stressed out, everyone's making bread, I feel like that's related too. Mm-hmm. And the yeast or the um, culture that you make for the bread, that's passed down. Mm-hmm. It's preserved and some of it is passed down. So there's something about those kinds of things that we're very attracted to and they're very nourishing for us as human beings. Yeah, um, yeah, I think so too. Um, and that's, that's why you know we do what we do. Um, I should say before we continue, if you have any questions for Danusha, I'm watching the chat messages on both um, both Facebook and uh, YouTube, so uh, not so much on uh, Periscope because it's just too much to look at. But if you have any questions on uh, Facebook or uh, YouTube, uh, just let me know and I'll pass them on to Danusha. Do you want to continue with maybe two more poems from the book, Danusha? Yeah, sure. Okay. Let's see, I've got all these little bookmarks, omens. Since I was just talking about the coyotes. So I'm turning right now. See, it's even like we're opening a 
the hymnal. <laughs> I am turning now to page 17, if you would like to join me I would. in this reading. <laughs> okay. Omens. Out here, we read everything as a sign. The coyote in its scruffed coat bending to eat a broken persimmon on the ground. The mess of crows that fills the apple tree, makes a racket, lifts off. In between, quiet. The winter fog is a blank. I wish I could make sense of the child's empty bed, the bullet hole through my brother's heart. The mailman drops a package on the front stoop, and the neighbor's dog won't stop barking. I tread down the stairs lightly. Because we can't know what comes next, we say, the plum tree is blooming early. There are buck antlers lying in the grass. A mountain lion left its footprints by the bridge. So that was Omens. Shall I do another one? Yeah. Okay. I think I'll do one that feels related to that. Um, the cat. Let me find where I have that. And that is on page 26 in Bonfire. Um, so yeah, this is a book that grapples a lot with grief and uh, losses that I experienced in my, in my 30s, in a period of my life, right? So this is The Cat. After my brother died, his wife was sure he was living inside their cat, Rocky. He's in there, she'd say, staring into those blank yellow eyes. Ismail, Ismail, can you hear me? She'd tell anyone who came by how the cat would slip into their bed, put a paw on her cheek, and just look at her. Or other times crawl under the covers, turning his furred back to her chest. My brother had picked out the cat when it was just a kitten, brought it home for his kids. And there it was, still roaming the hallways he would never set foot in again. He'd miss driving them to school, making them pancakes, reading them to sleep at night. So even though he took himself out of their lives with a single bullet aimed at his heart, I see now that if he could, he'd find a way back to those he loved, not as a ghost, but to walk again among them, almost silently on his tender paws, Perhaps it was the least he could do, to pad up the stairs, only the heat of his small body to offer, his cool and steady eyes. That was the cat from Bonfire Opera. Um, a heartbreaking poem. Um, mm. And you know, in the title poem, uh, which, which you might be reading later, but, but you had a line uh, that, that I thought stood for what we were talking about already with what poetry does, but but it's the body's bright wailing against its limits, mm -hmm. uh, which I just love that uh, expression. And um, it feels like, like that's what you're doing through this, throughout this whole book, is to um, sort of find the joy through um, the loss and tragedy of life, which um, I think, you know, people always say you know, there's so much uh, death in rattle, 
like in, in our poems, you know, and, and it's because, <laughs> yeah, it kind of is. And, and I think that, that death and, and the fact of our own mortality and the mortality of everyone around us is sort of the, the, the one fundamental sort of problem we all face um, yeah. as human beings. Like we're the only creatures in the known universe that are aware of our own mortality. And, um, and that's like a psychological trauma that we never really get over. And so wow. to, to know um, personal loss like that and then to reflect out and still find joy is such an important process to share through poems. I think that's why we do it. Um, but do you, um, do you feel like um, that that's something that, that you try to, um, you, know, you know, you try not to be too negative while being positive at the same time? Like how do you, how do you go through death and, and joy at the same time? Um, how do you sort of confront that? Gosh, what a question. How do you, right? And I guess the answer is, I don't, I don't know either. And I'm trying to find out. Um, in writing poems, I think I, I'm not consciously writing poems like, oh, here, I'm doing this to, you know, how do I find joy in death? But I, I'm taking those irritants like we do as writers. Like, I have this thing I, I teach my students about the irritant and the solace. Mm -hmm. Writers tend to have the same irritant their whole life. You know, when you think about it, you can look at a poet and go, what is their irritant? Hmm. That's a really what? interesting thing. Can you think of a, an example? Like, like, oh, a, yeah. like, like a specific poet that has a specific irritant? That's an interesting way to think of it. I, I, I think about it. So let me say Sharon Olds, mm -hmm. because that's a poet that people are going to be familiar with. And so there's an irritant for her around close, intimate relationships. So you can read all of her poems, and it's like the poems of her husband and their separation, the poems about her father, the poems about her mother, poems about her husband when they were together. Aren't they all sort of struggling with something about extreme closeness? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yet extreme separation. So I, I could phrase it better if I'd been, you know, <laughs> thinking about it a mm -hmm. lot. No, that was great. Yeah, yeah, that's a really okay. great example. So, so what so, is your irritant? I mean, do you think you do you know what it is? Yeah, I, I, my irritant is definitely uh, grief. Again and again, how do you deal with loss? You know, as someone who's lost a child and whose brother committed suicide and just had very heavy things happen close together, I'm aware that my irritant is grief. And then we can go to the solace part, which you've also been talking about a bit. And I think my solace is beauty. Hmm. And that comes through in some of the erotic stuff that I write because I'm kind of going how is this book so much about the erotic and then it's so much about death but I think my solace is something beautiful mm -hmm. um, I was talking with Ellen Bass about this when I first came up with this sort of way that I frame it and she said her solace is that things just are the way they are mm -hmm. just what is and that's sort of the solace in her work well Things are what they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very Buddhist way to think of it. Yeah, <laughs> and I want something pretty, apparently. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> well, well, it's it's the pushing the body to its limits, you know, too, like that line that you use, and the yeah. and the, the other. I think the end of that poem is something about a, the bird banging against the stained glass window that's holding it in. Um, yeah. You know, that same kind of thing of, of um, you know, feeling, you know, physically in the world as like a, a creature, you know, that, that's inhabiting a body um, is maybe the solace. Or, it seems to right, me. Right, like 
That's true. Maybe that's better said than the way, you know, it's funny. Other people can see your solace better than you can. <laughs> so thank you, because I think you're helping me see it. It's that it's being in a, I'm the creature in a body. And I think now that actually I'm kind of going through other poems, it, they do tend to come back to that. Oh, but I get to be a creature in a body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a magical There's thing that. to be, you know, this uh, electric meat or whatever. We <laughs> oh, my God, that's so weird. I love that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, do you want to keep going with a couple more poems? Well, I kind of feel like I need to read the title poem Yeah, after I think that. that'd be a good place to go. And I can yeah. find it, so I need to say. Oh, yeah. Well, page 12, okay. in case anybody else uh, wants to know. <laughs> So, you take a little sip of water up here in my 80 degrees. Yeah. Ah, so refreshing. Okay. Bonfire Opera. And this is, I should say, as a Santa Cruz person, this is uh, based in a true story <laughs> of a woman in Santa Cruz who used to do this. And when I read it recently in an event uh, that I was uh, doing with uh, singers, opera singers, one said, you know what? I think I'm going to do that now. So people will see what I mean when I read it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it sounds kind of fun. (laughs) Sounds kind of fun. All right, Bonfire Opera. In those days, there was a woman in our circle who was known not only for her beauty, but also for taking off all her clothes and singing opera. And sure enough, as the night wore on, And the stars emerged to stare at their reflections on the sea. And everyone had drunk a little wine. She began to disrobe, loose her great bosom and the tender belly, pale in the moonlight, the Viking hips, and to let her torn raiment fall to the sand as we looked up from the flames. And then a voice lifted into the dark, high and clear as a flock of blackbirds, and everything was very still. The way the congregation quiets when the priest prays over the incense, and the smoke wafts up into the rafters. I wanted to be that free inside the body, the doors of pleasure opening one after the next, an arpeggio climbing the ladder of sky, And all the while, she was singing and wading into the water until it rose up to her waist and then lapped at the underside of her breasts. And the aria drifted over us, her soprano spare and sharp in the night air. And even though I was young, somehow, in that moment, I heard it. The song inside the song. And I knew then that this was not the hymn of promise, but the body's bright wailing against its limits, a bird caught in a cathedral, the way it tries to escape by throwing itself again and again against the stained glass. And that was the title poem to Bonfire Opera. And um, so you already, I, I was wondering, I hate the question, but I was wondering oh, okay. if, uh, if it was true story or not. And um, so apparently it <laughs> yeah. is. The other thing I was yeah. wondering, it, it's such a great poem. And so I'm always curious about why poets title the poem what they do, uh, or po- title the chapbook, I should, or the book, I should say, what they, what they yeah. title it. And how did you pick that as the title? Like, how, when did you know that that was the central poem that would sort of put together the whole manuscript and make it sort of make coherent sense? Because it really does. Oh, well, thank you. Um, You know, it's that thing, you know how, uh, (laughs) what is it, desperation is the mother of invention? 
and I've something like that, right? Mm -hmm. And I feel like it's so hard to have a title. <laughs> it <laughs> so, is. <laughs> so hard to have a title. So when I wrote a poem called Bonfire Opera, I went, I love that as a title. I'll put, I write titles in the back of my, possible titles in the back of my notebook. So it went in there. And then it so happened that as there was an accumulation of poems that I felt like, okay, these poems are about desire. These poems are about that bird flinging itself against the glass um, in the face of so many things, you know, so such darkness. And even, so then when we worked on the cover of it, this shiny cover, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, um, I told them, you know, I sent some possible images. They chose their own, but based on what I'd sent, I wanted uh, that darkness mm -hmm. with something kind of forcing its way through it um, because I felt that, that that represented what the book is about. So I think it was kind of early on that I went, oh, Bonfire Opera. Mm -hmm. There's something to that. That's what this is. Yeah, even, even in the comments last week when I mentioned it, someone said, oh, that's a great title in the, in the chat oh, window. Yay. So it really <laughs> is. It stands out um, among you know all the titles you could possibly have. So if anybody wants to um, know the components of a great title. I think Bonfire Opera, because it's such a contrast of things that, you know, it's very imagistic, but it's completely unusual, the juxtaposition between an opera and a bonfire um, on a lot of yeah. levels too, like visually, but also like culturally or something. Like you don't, like a bonfire is sort of a really casual thing and the opera is is sort of higher, um, you know. Higher end. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so bringing them together and um, it's just a great title. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. It's funny you say that high and low end thing, because the person I, I look to for titles, so, you know, you look at different people, but a person whose titles I have traditionally, I, I traditionally loved was Tony Hoagland. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's and good at it. <laughs> donkey gospel mm -hmm. is the same, right? It it's is, high, yeah. lo, high, low diction. Um, and I'm trying to think of other ones. Donkey gospel. Mm. What are other early books of his? Mm. Well, then he has what narcissism means um, to me. He has just these funny titles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Sweet Ruin. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really good one. Yeah, him. yeah. And so I think he likes to do those kind of juxtapositions. And I was like, oh, I like that. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, we want to read another one? Oh, yeah. We're reading poems. That's right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. Let me see what I want to read next. Maybe uh, The Watch, which is on page nine. <clears throat> for those of you reading along with us. Okay, the watch. At night, my husband takes it off, puts it on the dresser beside his wallet and keys, laying down for a moment the accoutrements of manhood. Sometimes when he's not looking, I pick it up, savor the weight, the dark face ticked with silver, the brown ostrich leather band with its little goosebumps raised as the flesh is raised, in pleasure. He had wanted a watch and was pleased when I gave it to him. And since we've been together ten years, it seemed like the occasion for the gift of a watch, a recognition of the intricate achievements of marriage, its many negotiations and nameless triumphs. But tonight, when I saw it lying there among his crumpled receipts and scattered pennies, I thought of my brother's wife coming home from the coroner, carrying his rings, his watch, in a clear Ziploc bag, and how he sat at the table and emptied them into our palms, their slight pressure, all that remained of him. 
How odd the way a watch keeps going, even after the heart has stopped. My grandfather was a watchmaker and spent his life in Holland, leaning over a clean, well-lit table, a surgeon of time, attending to the inner workings, spring, escapement, balance wheel. I can't take it back. The way the man I love, the way the man I love is already disappearing into this mechanism of metal and hide, this accountant of hours that holds with such precise indifference all the minutes of his life. It's not a great poem, uh, The Watch mm-hmm. from Bonfire Opera. Um, and that's another poem that I um, highlighted, you know, as I was going through, I wrote some notes. And um, that line, oh, cool. how odd the way a watch keeps going even after the heart has stopped, is such a great, a great mm-hmm. line that just sticks with you, um, like the, the bonfire opera scenes do. Um, mm-hmm. And the other thing is that this poem has such a strong turn, which I noticed going through the poems, you have a lot of um, sort of leaps where you, you take a sort of a right angle. And, um, and here it is where you're talking about the watch as a gift, and all of a sudden you remember the watch in the bag of um, the, what's, re- what's remaining of people. Um, how do you go about your process of writing? We have a, a workshop we do every uh, Friday, and I always talk about the way the poem has to have a movement, or it has to take a turn somewhere, or go through a door. Right. Um, how, how do you sort of find where the door is in a poem, and, and how do you know when to take it? How does, how does the process of writing work for you? Oh, I love talking to other poets about poetry because, <laughs> yeah, it's such a poet's question. Well, right? I think they're, you, they're, you know, it's, it's pretty much all poets yeah. watching. So that's what we all want to know is how this stuff that's is great. done. Yeah. How do we do it? And so I, on this one, I actually can sort of remember what that was like, that I, I remember seeing his watch there sitting and going, oh, that makes me feel some kind of way. And <laughs> I mm-hmm. don't know what it is. And so I just made a mental note and I think wrote in my notebook before bed, his watch. And then I kind of watched, <laughs> watched my mind over the next day or two. It was a busy week, but I could, I could see my mind accumulating things. And I went, oh, my brother's, I, I was there when, when his wife came home from the coroner with that bag. Mm-hmm. And I realized that's a human life comes down to this little Ziploc bag in some way of here you know um and i went okay that's why Hmm. and it wasn't until i was sitting writing the first draft of it where i went okay i know this has something to do with my brother and it has to do with my husband it wasn't until i was writing it that i realized i come from watchmakers Hmm. and that that added another level like you can still buy a lamaris watch i think a vintage one in holland i wish i had one so (laughs) if anyone watching this (laughs) A gift, yeah. Trade it for, for a signed Where copy you... of the book. How about that? Oh, totally. <laughs> I will send you so many copies. But when I grew up, uh, when I was growing up, my dad wore a Lamaris watch. And so I thought, oh, then there's that. And then I had the fun of looking up some of the language of watchmaking. And um, spring, escapement, balance wheel. And when I read the poem up in San Francisco, you know, some years ago, Someone came up to me after and he said, do you know what it's called when they add an extra feature? Like when you can see the date or the wet, you know, the little time of day cloud sun thing. I said, no, what's that called? He said, a complication. Mm. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I thought I was like, damn, why didn't you tell me that before I wrote this? (laughs) (laughs) That was a great explanation, though. You know, um, do you think um, 
that you know you mentioned that you had this sort of sense that there was something there do you think yeah. subconsciously you knew like i always wonder if if we know deep down like what are we tapping into like how do we like like do you think you knew all those details do you think like one part of your brain remembered that you come from a family of watchmakers and and was tying it together before you even knew it or is it sort of a coincidence that pops up through the magic of the universe? I don't know. I, it's just so fascinating to me. Well, I mean, that's fascinating to me, too. And it makes me think of, I mean, I'm going to answer this in an indirect way. Uh, I used to work at a preschool because I like it. So I worked at a preschool as an assistant when I was in my 20s. And there was a, a preschool teacher there who told me this story. Every time there was a break from school, like a summer break or something, her partner wanted to go see Buffalo every time. And so it would be summer and, you know, my friend, the preschool teacher would be saying, can we go to Hawaii? And her partner would say, you know, I really want to go see the Buffalo. And it was actually a point of contention between them, as you can imagine, when you have different things you want to do. And then something happened they found out more about her partner's history, her background. She'd been adopted, hmm. and it turned out she was Native American. Oh, wow. And that changed everything about the buffalo. Mm -hmm. Did she know? Did she know somewhere? On Where did she know? So do we know things in our marrow that we don't know in our minds? Apparently we do. Yeah, yeah. I think we do. I don't know what it is. I don't know if we... Um... You know, we're a hologram in some kind of um, simulation or on the surface of a higher dimensional black hole or whatever we are. But somehow there's a connection that that is just yeah. so fascinating. And, and the only way you can explore it is through art, really, I, I feel like. You can't explore it scientifically. Um, no, but, that's and, true. And poetry is sort of the, the most fundamental art in a way because we're linguistic creatures. So um, I just love this stuff. Yeah. I do, too. I mean, definitely my mind goes there. I'm def I definitely believe in the mystery. And, um, you know, you do or you don't. And I, I think I definitely am someone who believes in the mystery and that just meaning that things are connected in ways that we can't quite um, understand with our logical mind. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree. Well, uh, well let's keep going um, through a couple more poems. Okay. And, and I have the ones that you um, sent to if you want to switch gears anytime. Oh, I can switch gears. That's right. Okay, so uh, maybe I'll read this poem, Daughter. Okay, daughter, and this is actually in Plowshares right now, page 54. <laughs> but not that that's, yeah, you necessarily have that in hand. So, but I know I sent it to you, Tim. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have it. Okay, good. Daughter, I always wanted a daughter, which is to say, I wanted a better self, flicked from my marrow, made flesh. I wanted this bone of my bones to move in the world exceptional and unharmed. Not this world, but a world almost exactly unlike it. Same paved street and street cafes, same slow unfurl of spring. Only in that world, the green of field and orchard is still wanton with winged things, their bellies powdered with the flower's gold dust. Daughter, I say, and I mean a list of what-ifs, a cacophony of sorrows. I imagine her tall, lithe as willows. When I say daughter, I mean a match, ready to strike herself against the world that isn't this one. I mean luck. I mean a river empty of drowning. I mean an arrow 
aimed at an unnamed star. Who said a daughter is a needle in the heart? I would take that needle, sew her a dress of yarrow and blood. In the world, not this one, I have a daughter. She is a long braid, a memory of fire. She goes before me, shining darkly into a city of gold, of salt, that I will never see. And that was Daughter by Danusha Lamaris, a newer poem um, from a forthcoming book, I guess, but in plowshares right now. Um, let's see, I'm trying to see if there are any questions for you from the audience. I like to try to make this as interactive as possible, but everyone's just enjoying your poems too much. Like all well, the comments are beautiful and what a wonderful ask. poem. And so feel free to ask any questions. Challenge us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what do you think? You, um, you're a teacher of poetry, too. Um, you, right. you teach independently, which is an unusual thing to see. Uh, maybe it's because you live in Santa Cruz that you're, there are enough po a pool of poets who are willing. Or how, how did that work out? How do you end up teaching uh, privately? Yeah, good question. Well, I turned to poetry when I studied, started studying with Ellen Bass. Um, in my late 20s. And that is how Ellen teaches. She teaches uh, from her house, from her living room. Pretty cool. And she said, Danusha, it's the steadiest job I ever had. Hmm. And she's a very pragmatic person. And at a certain point when she had an overflow of students, and also when Dorian Lux did, they started giving me students. Oh, wow. And so I thought, well, I didn't know I was going to be a teacher, but if people give me students, Maybe that's what could happen here. <laughs> so, so I kind of came in through a side door. But, but I, also, I also, since then, have seen the kind of freedom that that affords and the intimacy. I can determine who I work with, how many people I work with at a given time. We know each other as human beings. Mm -hmm. You know, we hang out. We used to hang out in my living room. Now we're little boxes on Zoom like everybody else. Um, but... Sometimes we're kind of raunchy and wild in ways that I would be worried about if I worked at, you know, a different, at an institution, maybe. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes we're, you know, it's, it, we keep it professional, we keep it on the poetry, but it allows us a lot of range. And it allows me a lot of pleasure, I guess, to um, be my, you know, own my own hours in that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Not that I haven't enjoyed visiting and teaching workshops. I mm -hmm. do. I do. But well, it, it's interesting. Yeah. I, it only just occurred to me, but uh, when we interviewed Richard Gilbert uh, for the Japanese poet, poems issue or Japanese forms issue uh, 47 of Rattle, he talked wow. about the structure of haiku in Japan and how, um, and it's actually the same way. And, and at the time I was thinking it would be so great if Americans did this too, but there's always a haiku group was sort of one haiku master. And maybe you don't want the word, you know, master apply to you. But but they call them haiku <laughs> right. masters in Japan. And so everybody will have the haiku and then they'll publish sort of stuff together as an anthology and things. But but that's how, how poets make money in Japan, apparently, is with these poetry circles that that um, that, that a lot of people participate in. So there's actually a um, way to go. And our current issue is with uh, Kim Adonizio, who does the same thing in San Francisco. Um, that's, that's how right. she's living is poetry workshops out of her home and i wonder if that's a growing trend it would be great to see because i really think that poetry is something that everybody should participate in because it's a way to um you know just enhance your life and, and everybody can do it and um and that's, that's how right. it's sort of viewed from what i understand of uh, richard who lives in japan and, and is in that culture um 
that's how we understand that it works really there. Cool. Yeah. Because we don't want, I mean, we are such a, a capitalist society and, you know, we can go down that whole rabbit hole too, <laughs> but things become commodified in a way that I think can be worrisome. Mm-hmm. Not that I don't charge for my classes. I do, you know, my students support me, I support them. Um, but there's something that feels really organic and good about that exchange to me and how intimate it is. And it's personal. And, um, yeah, I love, I, I love teaching sort of outside of the, the fray in a way. And I think also it, it's very hard for people to deal with a lot of the bureaucratic stuff that can come up sometimes and mm-hmm. the vying for positions and everyone's an adjunct and yeah. it's, it's not easy. Mm-hmm out there yeah definitely not um well since you teach do you have any like what is your main advice that you're usually giving to students like what what is do you sort of have a go-to kind of thing that you sort of see come up over and over again is is your sort of central advice yeah sure and it seems to change seasonally uh so and some of it's very practical and some of it is sort of on deeper levels so on the practical level i like to say give the reader the w's in the first part of the poem the who what when mm-hmm. where <laughs> orient your reader give them some w's you mm-hmm. know maybe yeah. you can't answer the why yet but we don't want to read your poem and go is this about a lover <laughs> hey, i'm laughing because that's kid? exactly what i say in our uh, friday afternoon workshops every you know half the time it is like you know just set like give us something to enter into so we know where this yeah. is taking place who's speaking and then we can be engaged yeah that's a good one we are on the same page we and definitely so, are. Uh, william stafford said when you're handing someone a hot cup of coffee give them the handle first <laughs> that's a good give them the handle yeah, be nice and i find usually the reason behind it is people don't want to let go of mystery and i said you know what let the mystery be the mystery don't let who is this poem about be the mystery. Mm-hmm. So I find usually that's what's underlying it, it is a is a good intention, mm-hmm. which is wanting to have yeah, mystery. Yeah. I go, that's good, but let the mystery be the yeah. mystery. Let the meaning be the mystery. That's what I think. You know, like what to take it. from it, not not you know where we exist within it, but what to take from it. Yeah, like the why. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Why. Yeah. So I would say that's a key thing, and I think the other thing that I found myself saying this morning and you know the other night and that keeps coming up is I go, you know, this is a good poem, what you've written here. You know, I'll say that to the poet, this is good. You can get this published. But I think there's a deeper thread that you can go for. I think there's something more uncomfortable. I think maybe there's a little more complicity from the the narrator, right? Uh, we, we like to, um, in this culture, there's been, there's such a pressure on being politically on point that I think that we lose a lot of the, sense of the poet showing their fallibility, mm-hmm. their weakness, their prejudice, their, yeah, their underbelly. Yeah, yeah. And I want to show my underbelly and I want to see the underbelly of someone else so that I know I'm just, I'm a human being. Mm-hmm. You're a human being. Do you ever worry about the reaction? Like when you mentioned that, because you already brought up probably Tony Hoagland, so I was primed for that. But there's that poem, right. which had such a sort of a terrible reception about with the... Um, um, with Serena Williams, the change, the change, the name that's of the poem. poem and, yeah, and yeah. and there was him revealing his vulnerability, you know, and, and his ignorance and his, you know, that 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 thing that he's ashamed of, really. And um, exactly. then it came back to really tarnish his legacy, maybe in a way. I don't know oh. if it has, but it, it sort of oh, possibly did. C- um, certainly has, I think, or threatens to. And I think I, I've thought about this a lot. Mm-hmm. 
for several reasons, of course, being African-American, but also um, knowing Tony. He was my first poetry teacher. Oh, really? Hmm. When I was 17. Oh, wow. He was dating our high school Spanish teacher, and he offered some of us a little poetry workshop for a week. Oh, and wow. it lasted all summer because we loved him. He only had a chapbook out at that point, not a full-length book. Uh, History of Desire was the chapbook. And so anyway, because it, it, and because he wrote me very lovely e emails later, and, and we had an exchange up until he died. Um, so because of the personal connection, but also as a poet. Okay, so what I think about that is, yes, I want to see writers talking about race. I want to see poets who are white talking about race and the uncomfortable things. And I have students doing that. And I go, yes, let's do this. I want to hear this. With Tony's poem in particular, I think he needed to go on longer. Hmm. I really thought about him like I don't hate what he says because he's owning that tribal animal part, that basic thing that we have as human beings. Uh, so I know it's dangerous stuff to talk about, but we have these mm -hmm. things that say maybe my kind of people are better. That. But I think that he kind of lets it go. And I can't remember right now off the top of my head the ending. But I think he lets it go a little too soon. It's like, oh, I got in the hot water. I jumped back out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I turned see and what you mean. That, yeah. For that time, that was already like, oh, but he got in the hot water. Uh-oh. Um, get in the hot water and stay there. I, I like to see people really grapple with those things. And I know that they're dangerous and uncomfortable things. But if not the poets, I don't really know who's mm -hmm. going to to go there and I don't think that we should all try to seem like we are very polished and, and perfect Yeah. nor do I think we should glorify our prejudices mm -hmm. but I think we want to explore them yeah yeah well that's a great great exploration yeah. that. thanks for that Denisha um, uh, let's see Deanna Cole and Vicky Miko both have sort of similar things they ask about um, Vicky Miko says you mentioned your mind accumulates things and she says do you write a lot of notes to refer to later or do you have a dream journal? And then Diana Cole has something similar. She says, when do you move into poetic form from journaling or free writes, or is it another process? So is there a journaling process that you go through? Um, you know, I, I have a student who is such an interesting accumulator. She'll go, oh, I'm going to write about blank. And then she'll just write down what Pam Houston calls glimmers, mm -hmm. just little bits about that topic for days. I wish I had a process like that because I think it's really interesting. <laughs> but what I'll tend to do is I get a title and or a first line and I write those down. And then when I sit to write, I am bizarrely linear. I just write the poem through. And it might be like if I showed you, I, I remember um, Ellen and she was teaching that poem, The Watch. And she said, Danusha, can you show me your early draft of it? And I said, well, it looks kind of like the finished draft, <laughs> but I'll show you. I wrote it right through and it was missing some bits that I added later, but I tend to be like a linear, I get the body of the poem and then later I go back and go, okay, that's bad. That's not working. What's this really about? You know, if I, the daughter poem too, I just looked at the notes of it and it's almost exactly the same. Hmm. Granted some years, it takes me 10 years to write a poem, mm -hmm. but I still probably got the body of it, not just random notes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's how I operate. <laughs> There's no right way, of course. And mm -hmm. uh, I love when people collect glimmers. Yeah, yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, well, do you want to read 
let's see. I'm trying to see if there are any other questions before, but we have 10 minutes left. Um, do you want to read? Cool. There's a, you know, a few more poems. Yeah, sure. I can do that. Okay. Okay. Already done with this one. Thanks for having me on here, by the way, Tim. It's fun to get to know you because we've never met. Yeah, it's great. I just love this. I get to meet someone new every Tuesday. And um, and, and yeah. the poets that we've been working with, I think our first time we published you is, I don't know, 2010 or something. So 10 years ago or so. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. And, and I get to read books, which is my favorite. Like, I never had an right. excuse to read books. Now I read at least a book a week, which... Um, it's like you have yeah, to. Yeah, yeah. It's not like um, I'm, you know, giving myself time to enjoy poems. I'm, I have to do it for work, so what am I going to do, you know? <laughs> what am I going to do? Exactly. Yep, to sorry. I have, have to stop, you know, doing boring things and, and read a book, so... <laughs> that's really cool. Yeah, that's the best thing about stuff like this is what it gets us to do. It does, yeah. Okay, what do I want to read? I always mark things, but then maybe I want to do something different. Yeah, whatever so you'd like. It'd be great. Um, okay, I'm going to read this one. I'm going to go here. It's Service Station, and it's on page 7, so toward the beginning of the book. And this is a poem where, in which, wherein, I try to make sense of something that happened throughout my childhood, which is that every time my mom would go to this gas station, the same thing would happen. And my brother and I would be like, what is going on? So it's a mis talk about the mystery. This was one of the mysteries of my uh, childhood. Service station. You're beautiful, sister. Eat more fruit, said the attendant every time my mother pulled into the 76 off Ashby Avenue. We never knew why. She didn't ask, and he didn't explain. My brother and I would look at each other sideways in the back seat, eyebrows raised. Though Lord knows, we'd lived in Berkeley long enough. He smiled when he said it, then wiped the windows and pumped the gas. I liked the little ritual. Always the same order of events. All the same lack of discussion. Could he sense something? Attuned to an absence of vitamin C? Or was it just a kind of flirting, a way of tossing her an apple, a peach, it's true my mother had a hidden ailment of which she seldom spoke, and true she never thought herself a beauty, since in those days you had to choose between smart and beautiful. And beauty was not the obvious choice for a skinny bookish girl, especially in Barbados. No wonder she became devout, forsaking nearly everything but God and science. And later, she suffered at the hands of my father, whom she loved, and who'd somehow lost control of his right fist and his conscience. Whose sister was she then? Sister of the early rise, the five o'clock commute, the centrifuge, sister of burnt dreams. But didn't her savior speak in parables? Isn't that the language of the holy? Why wouldn't he come to her like this, with a kind face and dark, grease-smeared arms, to lean over the windshield of her silver Ford sedan and bring tidings of her unclaimed loveliness, as he filled the car with fuel and told her, as a brother, to go ahead, partake of the garden, and eat of it? That's uh, another poem from Bonfire Opera. Um, a lot of people are asking you about the Tony Hoagland um, 
workshop that you oh. did at 17, which really is an amazing, an amazing opportunity. Uh, where, where were you at the time? Was he in Houston still or was that somewhere else? Uh, we were in Berkeley, oh, okay. just as in that poem I just read. And um, yeah, I went to a little private school there. Mm-hmm. And um, Tony just appeared as the, you know, the boyfriend mm-hmm. of Betty, the Spanish teacher. I didn't even take Spanish. I wasn't in her <laughs> class, but I was sort of like that writer kid, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and that's so what I was going to ask. Was it if you were already a writer kid at the time? And, and... I was a writer kid. Mm-hmm that thought, ooh, maybe I'm going to be a writer, but here's the thing, don't have much of a head for plot. So I didn't really know how that was going to work out. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I didn't seem to have that going for me. Mm -hmm. And then Tony showed up with his little kind of grin and, you know, mischief and and taught us this class for a a week that we called intraterm. It was just a week we we could take little classes to try. And then we ended up, you know, we loved it. We loved it. And we said, Tony, can we pay you and then just keep doing this, mm-hmm. you know, all summer? And he goes, okay. <laughs> it was maybe five of us. And so I, maybe it was every Tuesday night. I mm-hmm. feel like it was maybe on a Tuesday night. It was some funny little night like that. And he had a one bedroom or a studio apartment um, over by UC Berkeley campus. Mm-hmm. And we just show up and he would tell us all this crazy stuff. I actually have a poem I'm writing where I talk about this a long poem where I'm trying to tell this story. Um, but it was just fun. It was just, I didn't know poetry could be funny and kind of wild and irreverent. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in school and you're reading, you're reading Whitman. You're reading, I don't know, Tennyson. What was I reading back then? Um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, to me, this was just a bizarre, crazy revelation that poetry could be something like that and he basically said you know pretend a gun is going off at the beginning of a poem and start racing because you don't want to bore your reader they don't care about you you know he'd say stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) they don't care yeah you know you start tap dancing start doing something but make something happen early on Mm -hmm. yeah and i yeah Sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, I just say it's just such a great it brings sort of the whole thing full circle because you were talking about the way it's passed on generation to generation. So that's such a cool story that you you got to work with him uh, early. What do you think you could do to get more people reading poetry? Because that's always, you know, it's a I don't know what percentage of the population does, 5% or something, but they're missing out. So how do you um, how do you engage? Like, like, how did you become engaged yourself? And then how can we use that to? engage other people do you ever think of that okay that's i never thought of it that way how did i become engaged well clearly i like to be entertained Mm -hmm. and so and tony was entertaining and transgressive and i like things that are kind of transgressive so for me that's what caught me about it like you know what this is this is better than a movie because there's actual human vulnerability right in front of me and it's funny and edgy and risky. So I think words like that, edgy, risky, intimate, those are parts of that experience that got me interested. Yeah. Well, that's great. Um, you know, so, so all the comments, people are just loving your insights into poetry and your poems. Uh, one person somewhere, which I lost, uh, oh, Julie oh. Price, Julie Price, or Pinkerton Price. Uh, she says uh, she loves that pillow behind you. Is there a story behind that? <laughs> that is a great pillow. 
<laughs> should I put it in like the little uh, things on the YouTube after we can put where you can buy you the should, pillows? I think so. As long as you get a cut, I'd, I'd want to make sure. <laughs> <laughs> That's really hilarious. I love it. Um, well, do you want to finish up with one, one last poem? I do. And I have one in mind. Okay. So why don't I just do Great. that? I, it's like you forget people can see into your house during this, and it's kind of funny, hilarious. Okay, here's a little poem I wrote um, after the election. Uh, speaking of pol politics, and I don't really uh, approach politics in it, but it was a, there was a mood in the world that I think I was trying to reconcile in myself when I wrote this. And it's in the book, it's page 74, and it's Small Kindnesses. Small kindnesses. I've been thinking about the way when you walk down a crowded aisle, people pull in their legs to let you by. Or how strangers still say bless you when someone sneezes, a leftover from the bubonic plague. Don't die, we are saying. And sometimes when you spill lemons from your grocery bag, someone else will help you pick them up. Mostly. We don't want to harm each other. We want to be handed our cup of coffee hot and to say thank you to the person handing it, to smile at them and for them to smile back, for the waitress to call us honey when she sets down the bowl of clam chowder and for the driver in the red pickup truck to let us pass. We have so little of each other now, so far from tribe and fire only these brief moments of exchange. What if they are the true dwelling of the holy, these fleeting temples we make together when we say, here, have my seat. Go ahead, you first. I like your hat. And that was Small Kindnesses from Danusha's newest book from Pit Press, Bonfire Opera. A gorgeous book. Everybody's enjoyed it, so please uh, go pick up a copy from Pitt Press. Um, Danusha Lamaris, thanks so much for joining us today. It's really been a pleasure talking to you and, and finally getting to meet you, and not really in person, but in uh, video form. Uh, good to see you, and, uh, and thanks for sharing your work with us and uh, visiting with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me, too. Yeah, have a good night. You, too. Bye. Bye. That was Danusha Lamaris uh, with her book, Bonfire Opera, once again, from the University of Pittsburgh Press. Uh, you can find it at, uh, I think it's, it's I don't know, I remember the website, but Danusha Lamaris uh, dot, uh, what is her? Danusha Lamaris dot com is her website. Uh, and her name is D-A-N-U-S-H-A-L-A-M-E-R-I-S. That's Danusha Lamaris dot com. So check it out and do pick up a copy of Bonfire Opera if you can. Um, it's a great book. And, um, Really happy to have her on as a guest today. Now, um, um, before we start with the uh, open mic and the prompt poem, uh, let me say, let's see, the uh, if you would like to uh, read your poem for the prompt, uh, you can send a chat message to Rattle Poetry or give me a call at 818-850-7727. That's the number I couldn't remember before. Uh, we got a call from a 425 number. Um, there's uh, Michelle Parks, Richard Westheimer. Uh, some people have sent in poems to open mic at rattle.com. If you'd like me to show them on the screen, I can. And um, if um, if we don't have enough people calling in to fill up the next like 10 or 15 or 20 minutes, we will. I'll just read a few of these. 
so I appreciate uh, everybody who shared poems, and I hope uh, you enjoyed putting new poems into the world. Um, let me see. So the prompt for this week was... Um, hang on one second. The prompt for this week was... Oh, here we go. Uh, this week's prompt was, A superhero comes home to an empty house after a long day on the job. That was this week's prompt. Megan writes these prompts. She gives me a list about once every other month or so. And I picked this one out of the list because last week we did that um, book by Old Guy Superhero by William Trowbridge. So it seemed like an appropriate one. Uh, I wonder if I can find, really quickly, let me see if I can find this picture. Because my prompt is based on a picture, actually. Uh, if I can do it really quick, we will uh, throw this image in. Uh, let me see. So <laughs> Megan uh, made me a a mug at one point at one of those places that uh, you you paint over a mug. And um, let me see where it is. There's a picture of me with it. Let's see. I'm scrolling through our pictures. We have too many pictures on this computer. All the kids. I meant to put this on ahead of time. Let's see. Here we go. See if this works. Yep, there it is. This is my uh, poetry man mug. Uh, that was me a few years ago with this painting in the background. <laughs> which is the cover of my book next to me. There's my Poetry Man mug. So I was thinking about that uh, that uh, picture. And unfortunately, the Poetry Man mug, it used to be my, my pen and, and uh, pencil holder, and then I knocked it off the desk, and it shattered into a thousand pieces. So Poetry Man is dead. But I was thinking about that mug as I wrote the poem for this week. And this is my Poetry Man Wins the Battle. Poetry Man Wins the Battle. But at home, the dishes still stack in the sink like reckless stanzas. Past due notices pile near the door like so many rejection letters, their SAEs not even stamped. How he'd spend hours changing commas to periods, pairing each digit's expression down to its essence. Crime doesn't pay, but neither do poems, is all they say. But poetry should only be used for good in fighting his old nemesis, Professor Prose. Poetry man plops onto the couch and clicks on the news, hoping to compose his weekly poet's respond. And there he is again, the professor, an eyewitness iPhone footage. Half his lines are already broken by a relentless pair of iambic feet, but his blocky, symmetrical face stares straight into Poetry Man's studio apartment. You may have won this time, Poetry Man, he says, but one day you'll see that we agree. Even if I rhyme half the time, it's all just prose with line breaks. Then he laughs maniacally as they stuff him into a squad car and Poetry Man and Jams the TV. So that was Poetry Man. <laughs> Poetry Man wins, wins the battle. Um, now here is Megan's poem. As always, Megan's poem is better than me, because she's a better writer than me. But um, what can you do? Uh, superhero comes from a long day at work. This is Megan's prop poem. The trains are stopped. The bound are free. The kittens again plucked from their tree. I was stalwart, constipated, unemotional. The damsel's distress was negotiable, but that's the name of the game. I don't know why. I've learned it's best not to philosophize. 
The newspaper says I robbed the grave. I put a hungry man in the microwave. Watch it spin while the cat meows at my feet. Why was she standing right in the street if she wanted me? Should I leave it be? I inhale free will and exhale destiny. But no matter, the food's hot, the TV clicks on, and I'm relieved to mean nothing, at least until dawn. That was uh, Megan's poem, The Superhero Comes from a Long Day, Comes Home from a Long Day at Work. Now, uh, let's see who else we have here. Um, uh, Richard sent a poem in, and uh, let me give Richard Westheimer a call. Oops, hang on, I, I conclude the video. Here we go. Hey, Richard, good to see you. Let me pull you in just one second. Um, hello, so how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. It was a wonderful, wonderful hour. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, she is a great poet. I yeah. just love the new shows. I was really glad to get her on it and see a new book come out, too. I really liked her first book, so it was really fun to see a new book come in the mail. Well, and the, the discussion was... Uh, a lot of notes. Had I been taking notes, there would have been a lot of notes to take. Well, you can watch it all over again, and um, and there's closed captioning too, so you can just like you can actually copy and paste. You don't even need to take notes. It's amazing oh, the technology man. these days. Um, so you had a superhero poem called "A Second Chance." Do you want to say anything to introduce it, or just dive in? Uh, I'll I'll say real quickly something that occurred to me as as you were talking earlier uh, tonight about the door. And this is a pondered around in a lot, looking for the door <laughs> to, to walk through and found it, I thought, and then sort of rewrote the poem after I had walked through it. I went back and sort of rearranged the outside, uh, rearranged the outside of the door. Awesome. Well, here we go. A second chance. It's, everybody can see it. Good. A second chance. There were rags hanging from the leafless locust when he left that morning when he returned after another long day, he found they'd bloomed into moonlight, lanterns against a coal black sky, lighting the way into his utterly empty house. His wife gone, the credenza gone, all was gone except a note pinned to the bedroom door, dated from the future reading, you were our best hope and you were not enough. He walked outside and climbed the tree, sat among the sinewed limbs and bayed like a lost dog at the moon, which came down and held him like a baby, rocked him to sleep, whispered to him of that time he was kind and that other when he told his woman, I love you. In his dream, he once played with his child a cape draped on his shoulders flew with her to save all the other children from loneliness. By morning, the blossoms were gone, replaced by pale greening leaves. He lighted from the locust, walked back in the house, greeted his startled wife with a hug, and handed his daughter his neatly folded cape. Very nice. That was uh, um, Richard... Yeah, Richard Westheimer with a second chance. Thanks so much. Yeah, the turd is great there. Um, yeah, thanks for sharing that, Richard. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Have a good night. Thanks. Bye. Okay, let's see. Um, what do we got next? Let's see. So Jessica Dawson asked if I could read her poem for her, which I will. I'm happy to do. Um, 
Let's see. So let's do the 425 number and see who that is. Okay. Hey, I'm going to try to find my poem. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you email it to me? I did. Okay. Let me pull it up then. Who the, am I talking to? Second, I should have asked that first, I think. <laughs> the second email has a little line break fixed. Ah, oh, is this Chris Beaver? Yes. Ah, hello, Chris. Good to hear from you again. Okay. Hi. Nice. To, oh, my gosh. That was such a great reading and talk today. Woo-hoo. I thought it. so, too. I, yeah, I loved it. Um, I'm going to watch that again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, great. Great to hear that. Um, so, yeah, so the superhero comes home. I have it ready, and it's the corrected version. Okay, here we go. Okay. The superhero comes home. The cluttered clink of her house keys dropped into the chipped blue dish her son handmade and gave her when in second grade. The quiet air of empty space freckled with dust, flecks floating like lost intruders. Sunlight warming the hardwood floor through the front window. Yesterday's dinner plate and napkin in the sink. Tuna sandwich crusts and browned apple core wet where she poured a leftover glass of milk after getting the call to fill in for Marjorie, her best friend, who'd tested positive and had the night shift cleaning the nursing home where they'd worked 18 years. Fluted pink and yellow tulips in a clear glass face on the dining table. A card from her family. We love you and miss you. Hope you're okay. To the greatest grandma ever, happy Mother's Day. Uh, excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was Chris Beaver with The Superhero Comes Home. Really appropriate poem for uh, for this week, which is Mother Day coming coming up on Sunday. Uh, thanks for sharing that, yeah, Chris. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, have a good night. And... Um, a couple other people sent poems. Thanks so much for sharing these. I'm sorry I can't get to everybody, but I do have to get the kids to bed and then take the dog for a walk and, and all that stuff. So here's uh, Jessica Renee Dawson reading her poem, More... Well, no, she, I'm reading her poem, More Blue Than Red, Spider-Man's Lonely Night. My blinds are closed to cloak the way I live day to day with an empty pizza box on the counter from last night and to block a glimpse of the old typewriter where I clack the keys, writing descriptions for pictures of everything, but myself sticking to walls. I never land the prize-winning photo my editor has been craving ever since I started. Here in the city where I wait in the shadows to bring justice where there is no justice, I long for her freckles and auburn curls to greet me at the door and to hold my body as I dream Yet no one can know my secret. Tonight, it doesn't matter. The carpets need replacing. Or that my red and blue tights are draped over the Chesterfield near the black and white TV, where I wonder if it's still okay to eat yesterday's pizza. Great poem. That is uh, Jessica Renee Dawson with More Blue Than Red, Spider-Man's Lonely Night. It's funny that, that so many of us uh, ended up with TV. <laughs> Superheroes watching TV. It's kind of funny. It's sort of like uh, dogs with hats or something. Um, you know, there's nothing more funny than a uh, Spider-Man watching TV. So that's a great way to go with these poems. Thanks so much, Jessica Renee Dawson, for sharing that uh, poem tonight. Um, there's like five more people, so I can't get to everybody. I'm sorry if I did not get to you tonight, but um, if I didn't get to you tonight, I'll try to get to you next week. 
Um, and, and I should, that's a good segue. So next week's guest is going to be, as we already mentioned at the beginning of the show, Rosemary Watola Tromer with her newest book, Naked for Tea. That is on Tuesday, May 12th at 9 p.m. Eastern time. I hope you can join us then. And, um, Somehow I forgot to share the prompt. So um, next week's prompt is going to be write on sentence poem. Write a prose poem consisting of one long sentence, commas, and other punctuation okay. So once again, that is next week's prompt, and that is to write a run-on sentence poem. Write a prose poem consisting of one long sentence, commas, and other punctuation okay. So um, so that's one that we should get a whole bunch of... Um, of different topics, and, and we'll see see how that goes. See how long you can keep your sentence going. Um, so that's next week's prompt by Megan. I uh, hope you can write it, and if you do, uh, send it into openmicatrattle.com. You can include your phone number, and I'll give you a call, or um, or uh, send a chat message during the show, or call during the show, and you can read it yourself. And um, so once again, next week's guest is uh, Rosemary Botola Tromer, and uh, we'll see you then. Have a great night and uh, we'll see you soon goodbye